humans have way more potential than we realize. So by doing something hard, when you think you really can't do it, we learn a lot about ourselves. And there's some like evolutionary machinery that really gets triggered. Our natural environment used to show us these sorts of challenges all the time because life was tough. We had to do things like hunt and gather and move great distances. But nowadays we don't really have that. So I think we do need these sort of moments that push back at us and teach us something about ourselves. Hey everybody, Emily Abadi here. You are listening to another installment of Hurdle Moment from Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. This week on Hurdle Moment, I am, let's call it reigniting. I'm bringing back my conversation with Michael Easter. He is the author of The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. And him and I had a chat last year about how to get more comfortable with the uncomfortable and why that is so important. He's a contributing editor at Men's Health Magazine. He's a columnist for Outside Magazine and a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Now I know why you're wondering, why are you re-upping this conversation right now? And honestly, it wasn't that long ago following our conversation that I finally had time to sit down and read Easter's book, The Comfort Crisis. And TBH, it had some really impactful takeaways, many of which we touch on in this episode that I really feel can help shift your perspective and help you on your journey to get the most out of your potential. Now, before we get to this episode, I do want to make sure that I, one more time, give some love to my friends at ASICS who are offering up the Hurdle community $15 off a purchase of $100 or more using the code HURDLE15 at checkout. They were so kind to have me out at World Athletic Championships with them, and I know how rare it is to get a good deal on some great sneakers. So again, that's Hurdle15 at checkout at asics.com. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle over on social. It's at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And one more thing, I'd love to feature you in the Hurdler Spotlight in the weekly Hurdle newsletter. I have a form in the show notes that you can fill out and I can hype you up ASAP. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am chatting with Michael Easter. He is a new author of The Comfort Crisis, Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am so good. The question right off the bat has to be, how does a guy get to a point where he says to himself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a book about getting uncomfortable. Yes, that is a great question. And there were a variety of steps for that. So I'll kind of start from the beginning. One, I worked at Men's Health for a while, right? And I noticed this pattern 
in everything I did for men's health, getting healthy, whether it's improving your fitness, losing weight, usually comes with some form of discomfort, right? If I want to improve my fitness, I'm going to have to work out. Well, working out is uncomfortable. If I want to lose weight, I'm probably going to be hungry. Being hungry sucks. Okay, so there's that. Then I meet this guy whose name is Donnie Vincent, and he's a backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. He goes into these crazy remote places off the grid, and he'll be there for like a month, right? And I end up doing a story with this guy from Men's Health. So we go into the, the wilds of Nevada for like a week. And, you know, like working at Men's Health, you have to work out a lot. Like you get sent into these crazy extreme gyms. I've met some characters, whatever. But we get up there and it is uncomfortable in all these different ways that like I just hadn't experienced forever, right? It's freezing cold the entire time. We're carrying these 80 pound packs on our back the entire time. Like to go get water, we have to hike a mile downstream and bring it back up. We're bored because hunting is actually very boring. It's not like you're just walking through the woods. Like you're kind of looking through scopes for like hours at a time. And we only had one scope and I didn't have my phone and I didn't have service. So it's just like, oh, what is boredom? Like this is new. Long story short, Donnie, the story is good. Like people like it. We both get a lot of outreach. He invites me to come up to the Arctic with him for 33 days. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> so I go up there with him and it is just Nevada on steroids where it's like, I experience all these discomforts that we as humans literally experience every single day. The life I lived up there was how humans lived for 2.5 million years up until like a couple hundred years ago. But when I come back to my nice, safe, comfortable life at home, everything is better. Like the dial on my mental, physical, and even spiritual health was like 11. It was just unlike anything that ever happened. And I wanted to know why that was. So I sort of set off on this investigation and I traveled around the world. I read way too many studies, like way too many, met with people ranging from special forces, soldiers, uh, anthropologists at Harvard. Uh, I went to Bhutan and met with Buddhist leaders, went to Iceland. And sort of the, the conclusion that I came up with was that humans need a little bit of discomfort to improve their lives. And there are a handful that I've identified in the book and they all tend to be things that we used to face all the time, right? We used to have to go through hunger, like life took effort. And even the way that we approach exercise today, we try and make it comfortable. Like we go into these air conditioned gyms and like we get on elliptical, it's all like very programmed and scheduled. And then like, okay, my 30 minutes are up. I'm gonna go, now I'm gonna go like sit on the couch, right? Whereas life used to force us into challenge and effort. And so I've sort of by investigate or sort of by weaving back some of these things that I've singled out in the book, we can move the dial a lot in ways that I think are beneficial for people. So interesting. I mean, there's so much to tap back on here. First and foremost, 33 days in the Arctic. Wow. You're married, right? I am married. Yes. Okay. You want to hear something totally messed up though? This is the most messed up part of all this book. And I didn't talk about this. This is a, this is a sore spot. While I was in the Arctic, my wife went on a freaking cruise into the Greek islands. So she's like, oh. she's like, oh, you're hungry? Yeah. Well, I was on a boat. That's a floating buffet. You know, it, was, it was awesome though. It was the ultimate troll. <laughs> The ultimate. Oh my goodness. I was going to say, how did she feel about you going to the Arctic for 33 days? But it seems that she managed just fine. She did. 
And then two other things that you brought out, really interesting to think about. The first thing you mentioning, well, I didn't have my phone. The phone has become such a crutch for us in so many circumstances of discomfort, right? You could be anywhere from out to dinner with someone to walking down the street. And these are all instances where you have ample opportunity for other social interaction, but we lean into our phones to get over that hurdle of, well, I don't know what's going to happen if I actually expose myself to the world. Yes, totally. And there, there's a good reason for this. So as humans evolved, two things. When we would get bored, Boredom is this like evolutionary discomfort that basically tells us whatever you're doing right now, um, the return on your time invested has worn thin. So you need to go do something else. So for example, let's say we're hunting, there's no animals around, boredom would kick in and basically be like, yo, go do something else. It's going to improve your life. So it kept us alive. Uh, Number two is that humans hate unpredictability. So I talked to this researcher at Brown and he's like, the the human brain is always going to um, default to something that can predict. So we have two things going on. One is that now, anytime we feel even the most tinge of boredom, we have this really easy and captivating way to fix it, a phone. Number two, with that social thing, it's like, if I'm having a conversation with someone on text, that is so much more predictable than if we're having a face-to-face interaction. Because Let's say I say something in a way that you take wrong. Well, that's scary. But if I'm writing a text, I'm like, oh, this person might take that wrong. Delete, delete, delete. I can filter it and send it. So yeah, the phone, there's a reason now. And something else I talk about in the book is that, you know, there's a lot of focus on phones. And I think that that is great. But I think that sometimes when people try to use their phone less, they oftentimes will just default to like, okay, well, now I'm just going to watch Netflix instead, or now I'm going to be on my computer screen instead. And like your brain does not know the difference in terms of how hard it has to work between the screen on your phone and the screen on Netflix, or even things like podcasts. And these are all great things. But like my argument is like, let's not think less phone. Let's think how can I integrate boredom back into my life in a productive way? Because you'll find that once you don't have that easy escape into your phone, the brain tends to come up with creative ideas. Some of them are totally a waste. Like you'll think of some wacky stuff that you're just like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> but a lot of times you'll find something interesting <laughs> and productive. You know, So they do studies where they find that bored people come up with more better uh, creative ideas than people who are not bored. So interesting. So interesting. And something else that you mentioned was that so many companies have made it their mission to make getting healthier, quote unquote, easier and seem less difficult. So the question arises, really, is that then a good thing or a bad thing? Because from my point of view, at least until this conversation and this moment, thinking about it in this manner, my thought is that it's a good thing, right? Because for so many, the change and the stepping outside of their comfort zone feels like such a barrier to entry that for some, they need that level of ease to get in the door to start with. So what do we say to that person when it comes to perhaps picking up a new meditation routine or getting into fitness or something like that? Yeah. So I'll answer that this way. And like specifically thinking about fitness, if you are a person who frequently exercises and enjoys working out, you are one of the weird ones. 
okay? So when you look at like how humans evolved, exercise is something we made up when we had to remove movement from our days by these technological advances. Like it would have never made sense to move without a very uh, purposeful objective. Like I need to go get food or something like that. So we're wired for laziness essentially. So I tell you that because I don't think, I think a lot of times in the fitness world, people get shamed for not exercising and not wanting to exercise. It's like, no, it's totally normal to not want to exercise and to not enjoy it. And that's okay. But it's also like, there's a lot of things that I do in my life that I've been forced into doing that I don't like to do either. Like, I didn't want to learn to read when I was a kid. Reading is this thing we had to make up to like improve our communication as a species, as we had a lot more people, right? But I had to do that, have to pay my taxes, you know? And obviously you don't have to exercise in the way you have to pay your taxes, but we also know that if you're not moving, you're, there's gonna be health consequences down the road. I mean, the data is overwhelming in terms of how, what a lack of fitness does for mortality rates. Like it's, I mean, it takes more years off your life if you really don't move at all than smoking when you look at the data. So I don't know if that answers your question, but (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of one of those things. And I think that, I think starting where you're at is so important too, you know, like if you don't do anything, it's like, just start with a five minute walk. That if that's too long and that sucks too much, try one minute, try 30 seconds. Next time, try 35 seconds, then 40. I think it's really just sort of just building up that ability to be okay with feeling a little uncomfortable and that improves over time. Okay. So the natural question that builds up over time here is someone recognizes, okay, I need to make a change. I understand that this change is going to be uncomfortable or what it is that I am seeking to do is not within my current wheelhouse. How do they proceed? What's the next step after making that perhaps like confession to themselves? I think a lot of times people get more worked up about the idea of being uncomfortable than they are about actually being uncomfortable. Like once you start something, it's not that bad. You know, it's like take hunger, for example. People don't freak out about being hungry. They freak out about the idea of being hungry, right? It's like, because if you've actually experienced physiological hunger, it's not like it builds and builds and builds. And then it's just like completely unbearable. It kind of comes and goes in waves based on where your attention is. So I think realizing that you're probably overthinking this, like, yes, there's going to be some moments of discomfort, but also think like, you kind of sometimes have to do things that are uncomfortable if you want to improve yourself or learn things. I mean, change is uncomfortable. Back to like what humans like and don't like, humans are wired to not like change. We want things that are predictable right? Like the human brain has always defaulted to what is predictable. So getting out of your comfort zone can be tough, but the rewards are huge. I mean, even just things like you look at the research on changing up your routine and we all tend to live in autopilot mode. Well, once we go out of that autopilot mode, it really can improve your focus and where your attention is spent. All of a sudden you can't predict the future. So you have to pay attention, you know, and you look at someone like the work of William James He talks about how at the end of your life, the sum of your life is what you paid attention to, right? So if you can get yourself in moments where you just are kind of forced into being mindful, it's like that stuff you're going to remember.
taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsors. First up, Athletic Greens. It's what I sip on every single morning. In fact, it is what I am sipping on right now as I deliver you this content. Athletic Greens is by far the simplest yet most comprehensive supplement I have implemented into my daily routine. It's a greens powder that provides 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, plus the antioxidant equivalent of 12 servings of fruits and vegetables. No catch. It's a one-stop shop to help support my body's nutritional needs across five critical areas of health, including energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal and neural support, and healthy aging. I get asked about the taste all of the time, and honestly, the best way that I can describe it is it's refreshing and subtly sweet without any of that grassiness that sometimes can come with green juices and beverages. Plus, it's got under one gram of sugar per serving. Athletic Greens is a special offer for the Hurdle listeners. Head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle and get a year's supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to get all the freebies and get in on the Athletic Greens gang today. Also got to give some love to my friends at Element because I cannot imagine my life without it right now. I did a 14 mile long run this morning. And let me tell you, the first thing that I did the second I was finished was chug down an ice cold bottle of watermelon Element. For those of you that are new to Element, Element is science-backed electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. It's plant-based, it's got no sugar, no gluten, no fillers, no other sketchy ingredients. Now, I know you may be wondering why are electrolytes important? Well, electrolytes facilitate hundreds of functions in the body, including the conduction of nerve impulses, hormonal regulation, nutrient absorption, and fluid balance. And when we lose electrolytes, it can lead to some not so stellar symptoms like headaches, muscle cramps, and fatigue. Element can help prevent all of that. That is why it's my go-to. Plus, they have so many different flavors for every taste. You can try them all because right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any order. That is eight single-serve packets free with any Element order. Simply head on over to drinkelement.com slash hurdle. That is drink, D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com slash hurdle. I'm like sitting here thinking about that idea of the sum of your life is the things that you pay attention to. It's, I remember once I was speaking to someone and they pointed out that the differences between like optimistic people and pessimistic people and the optimistic people are the ones that are sitting on the sidewalk, having lunch with a friend and they see an elderly couple walking across the street and they're like super cute and they're just enjoying the simple things of life. And the pessimistic person that you could be having lunch with sees this smelly garbage truck, like pull up and put the trash in the back. And how different are those two perspectives on life? Because one person goes about their day and finds like the small joys and the simple pleasures. And the other person is like, I don't know, it's sometimes maybe like the classic cynical New Yorker. And this is just the ways that you go about your living. Totally. Uh, so I'll tell you a story. And let me preface the story by saying that I am not suggesting in the least bit that you have to go to Alaska for more than a month to get this effect. But I will tell you this. So we get up there. It's 
freezing cold, right? We have one day where we're like 12 miles from camp and the sun is going down. So we have to get back. And the way you get back is across the tundra, which is, I won't go into detail, but it is the worst thing to walk on in the world because it's kind of like half frozen. There's these big like balls of grass that are really hard to walk on. And this was like pretty deep into the trip. And we get back to the tent and it is, you know, it's like negative 20 outside and I'm freaking starving and I have a cliff bar and that's all I had for dinner. Right. And so now it's like when I get back into my normal life, I can like stand, let's say in a restaurant or something like that. And the service might be crappy (laughs) and things may not be going my way, but I can be like, oh, I'm warm. Yeah. I didn't have to walk 12 miles to get here. I'm about to eat something that's a lot more delicious than a cliff bar. And it's going to be amazing. Things are totally fine. So I think the lesson is that like, sometimes we need to it's easy to get locked into a perspective where we don't really see how good we have it, a lot of us, right? And I'm not suggesting at all that like the world doesn't still have problems that we need to work on. But I think a lot of people's everyday problems are sort of first world problems. And we don't see that, right? So if you have moments that push back at those, it can give you a lot of perspective and that will make you more appreciative of everything you have. Well, this is the same thought process behind the marathon, right? It's the commonplace of once you run a marathon, your perspective on so many of the other hurdles that you will have to overcome in your life completely shifts. And you understand that having perhaps succeeded and pushed yourself through something that at times for sure felt a hundred percent impossible that you are then capable of anything. So for you in reporting this book and all of the experts that you spoke with and the research that you learned, does anyone have like a, a term for this? Is there something in the brain that becomes unlocked when we see ourselves getting through these difficult hurdles? It's a good question. So I, part of the book, I talk about this idea called Misogi. And I met this guy. His name is Marcus Elliott. He super far out. He's like gone to Burning Man since way back when it was like super weird back in the day. That's how you know you're super far out is that you, you're a Burning Man veteran. hundred <laughs> percent. But he's also, he went to Harvard Medical School. So he's also very, very smart. And he started this company called P3. And they have contracts like with the NBA and the NFL. And they do all this like data movement modeling. It's all like very science and techie. Like he's totally revolutionized sports science. But he also knows that like what improves humans, our performance, um, how we see the world can't always be measured. So they do this thing called Misogi. And it's like once a year, they will pick one really freaking hard thing that's usually outdoors and they'll go do it to see if they can do it. And there's only two rules. Uh, rule number one, it's got to be really hard, which they define by saying you have a 50% chance of finishing it. Rule number two is that you can't die. (laughs) So pretty straightforward rule number two. And they've done things like get an 85 pound boulder and walk it five miles beneath the Santa Barbara channel. So they'll like dive down 10 yards. The next guy goes down all kinds of just kooky challenges. And the idea is what they're mimicking is when you look at like all cultures, like older cultures, people usually had to go through a rite of passage. Now, the idea of a rite of passage is that you as a human are at point A, but we need you in our tribe or whatever it is to be at point B. Now, to get you to point B, we're going to like send you out in the wild to do something hard. So you look at all these different cultures, there's things like 
the Maasai would do lion hunts, the Aboriginal tribe would do walkabout, uh, all kinds of different stuff. And while you're out there in this sort of middle ground of challenge, you're like, I don't know if I can do this. You have these moments where you're like, I'm gonna quit, I'm gonna quit. You know, I can see my edges coming up and I'm gonna quit when I hit that edge. But then you step over it and you keep stepping and then you look back and go, well, I thought my edge was right there, but I'm beyond it. So like, I sold myself short there. Where else in my life am I selling myself short? You know, I think that humans have way more potential than we realize. So by doing something like that, doing something hard, whether that's this kooky Masogi thing this guy does, or a marathon when you think you really can't do it, we learn a lot about ourselves. And there's some like evolutionary machinery that really gets triggered. And I think that, you know, our natural environment used to show us these sorts of challenges all the time because life was tough. We had to do things like hunt and gather and, you know, move great distances. But nowadays we don't really have that. So I think we do need these sort of moments that push back at us and teach us something about ourselves. For the person who finds themselves constantly underestimating themselves, or perhaps, as you said, selling themselves short, what advice do you have for them to help them push through that hurdle? First of all, you're totally normal. So if you think about as humans evolved, it would make sense. There would be a survival benefit to be the type of person who goes, I don't think I can do that. So if something you know were to come your way, you're like, I'm not touching that. It's a little too risky. But if you were thrown into that situation to actually have an outsized ability to complete it, right? So we, there was an advantage to not thinking you're capable of something, but actually being capable. If humans would have been the opposite, if we were like, hell yeah, I can do that. And then we get out there and it's just like, we suck. Like we would have died off, right? So I tell you that to basically say, you are capable of a lot more. Like we are not far removed from the people of our past. And, you know, our ancestors used to exercise 14 times more than us. It wasn't abnormal for them to have to run 20 miles in any given day. Like we have this on board. We just don't want to use it. And there is a good reason for that. And then in all of your reporting, was there anything else that really took you by surprise? Yeah, for sure. So I went to, so I'm up there hunting, okay, backcountry hunting, and I had never hunted before. And I was super reticent about hunting because I'm like, it was, it's weird because like I eat meat all the time. And yet I'm like, I don't know if I actually want to engage in that. So I, I won't go into the details, but I end up hunting, like I still have meat in my freezer, but it got me thinking about the life cycle. And in the West, I think we don't want to think about or acknowledge the fact that one day we are going to die. And you can see this in our funeral system where like when someone dies, we sort of make them look as youthful as possible. And then we sort of, you know, have this viewing and then they're in the ground and then we're told, you know, keep your mind off it. Go do something to take your mind off it. Uh, even our food system, right? It's like our meat is, is manicured in such a way that we're not reminded that it came from a living thing. So I end up traveling to Bhutan because they have a very different uh, relationship with death than we do in the US. People in Bhutan are instructed to think about death at least once a day. A lot of their art and cultural stuff revolves around death. And I talked to this, uh, this guy who's super high up in Buddhism there. And it was, it was a total trip because he lives in this like cliffside shack up this total rutted out dirt road. And my driver, you have to have a driver there. Um, we're in a smart car, essentially. And so my driver like 
Baja 500s this thing up this dirt road. And I get to this shack and it's like, I kind of have to go door to door and it's very basic. And I open this drape and like, there's this big statue of the Buddha and there's like this incense smoke in the air. And like, this guy just like turns to me and he's like, hello, you know, I'm just like, oh my God, this is like <laughs> the gangly Westerner has come to see the guru. Uh, but we talked for a handful of hours and he talked about how in the West, we just don't want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, one day we're going to die. But once we actually do that, it changes our behavior. Cause all of a sudden you realize like this ride is going to end and people naturally become a lot more um, appreciative and it helps you sort of figure out like, what am I doing with my time? Helps you become more compassionate as well because if I know that like, you know, one day this ride is going to end and someone annoys me with like a snarky email, like I'm just not going to get worked up. I'm just going to be like, eh, whatever, you know, helps me make better decisions. Now this is very uncomfortable thought, of course. It's like, oh man, that is heavy. But on the other side of that, I think uh, your life improves. And there's, you can find some happiness there. And it's interesting because Bhutan is, even though they're like totally low on the development rankings, they always rank as one of the world's happiest countries. Wow. I mean, I probably needed to take that perspective last weekend when I was like attempting to put up vinyl stick on wallpaper. Wow. You would have thought, you would have thought the world was ending when this was going nowhere near as easy as they make it look like in all the videos. I was like on the floor. I FaceTime my dad. I've got like mascara on my face. He's like, what's on your face? I'm like, I've been crying. I can't get this wallpaper up. And then I'm like, wow, it's just some stick on wallpaper. I love and that. We're fine. We're fine. Totally. Such an interesting perspective and such a really important lesson to take away. Just understanding that these moments of discomfort, they come and they go and that we have the opportunity to either embrace that and kind of harness that and work through that, or uh, we can be the only thing that holds ourselves back, right? Totally. Yeah. And on the other side of that discomfort is usually some sort of improvement in, you know, body, mind, spirit all that good stuff. Michael, how do the hurdlers keep up with you? How do they follow along with you? Give me all of the information. So my book that we're talking about is called The Comfort Crisis. It's available wherever books are sold. I have a website, eastermichael.com. And then I'm on Instagram at Michael underscore Easter. I'm over at Emily Abadi at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.